Well, good morning. Am I ever glad to see you? Because I was afraid you might have all gone to your cottages for this last summer weekend. But it could be that some of you are like me and don't have a cottage. So uh, here we are together. And I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited for you next Sunday as your new pastor comes to be with you. I'm less excited for me. Because that means you don't need me. But he may take vacations, who knows? And I may still be around. At my age, you never know. It was one of those nights that just seems to sparkle. Although there was no moon in the darkness, Approaching midnight, the stars shone so brightly they seemed to stand right out from the sky. It was cloudless. It was cold in early spring. In the last hours of Sunday, April 14, 1912, the temperature of the iceberg-infested waters of the North Atlantic had sunk well below freezing point for fresh water. The water was as calm as a mill pond that night. There was not a breath of breeze on the sea. But none of that mattered to the over 2,200 people aboard Titanic because they were safe and secure and comfortable on that beautiful night. They were warm, basking in the knowledge that lookouts and officers and radio operators were on duty, alert to guard against any danger. But actually, no one was giving any thought to danger at all. You see, they were on a ship that could not sink. They, they gave little thought, because after untold millennia of men going to sea with danger and fear, the time had come when man's near-perfect understanding of technology and his ability to plan ahead, it was almost impossible to think of a ship foundering, even in the iceberg-infested waters. Titanic was divided into 16 watertight compartments. Technical magazines called her practically unsinkable. The captain himself had assured people that modern shipbuilding had gone beyond the fear of a ship foundering. Indeed, one of the crew had said God himself could not sink this ship. No wonder then that the passengers should give their attention to the comforts and the amenities of the largest and most elegant ship that had ever been built. And she was large, 882 and a half feet long. Uh, I don't know, 275 meters, I think, in feet. I'm old. 46,000 gross tons. Almost 100 years later, I sailed on ships that were smaller than that, even though they were in our modern age. 
Her firemen would shovel over 100 tons of coal into her 29 massive boilers every shift. And in doing that, her three screws drove her through the water at 22 and a half knots. Her sharp bow breaking a wave in front of them and her three screws leaving a foaming trail behind. And she was elegant. Her millionaire suites with their adjoining room for one's personal servant were elegant. Their private verandas were elegant, luxuriously carpeted and individually decorated. Their occupants did not hesitate to pay the $4,300 fare to cross the Atlantic in 1912. Now, I did a little bit of math. Well, I, I have a, a, a phone to do my math for me, you know. And um, that comes out in today's dollars to something north of 115000 so I thought, how does that compare to a suite across the, the, the North Atlantic today? And the only liner that's left is the Queen Elizabeth II. The rest are all cruise ships. And uh, I checked out the fare. The most expensive fare I could find was $11,500. Now that does mean I'm not going, but just just so you can get a sense of what it meant in those days to be able to do this. And even the third class, the steerage, had a level of comfort that had never been known before. And down in that third class area, they were singing, having a good time. The only issue was a bunch of girls screaming when a solitary rat had the unfortunate experience of giving the young men the opportunity to show themselves brave in front of the girls. And so it was. It was appropriate that several hundred emigrants in steerage and the great lights of the day were on that ship. Charles Hayes, president of the Canadian Grand Trunk Railway, was on that ship. Isidore Strauss and his wife, founders of Macy's, were there. J. Bruce Ismay, president of the White Star Line and thus actually the owner of the ship, was there. Benjamin Guggenheim of American Smelter was there, and the richest of all, John Jacob Astor. Billionaires all in today's dollars. And so there they were, the great and the near great. The emigrant with his few belongings, looking for a better life, they were all there. And the thing that is so striking about this story is that they were secure. They were boastfully secure. And why not? If the ship is unsinkable, what have they got to worry about? Her captain was the most experienced in the line. Indeed, this was his final voyage before his retirement when he expected to enjoy himself for years to come on his pension. <laughs> 
One of our historians puts it this way. All around were the rich and the famous, men who might fairly be said to have reached the top of their respective trees. They had attained their life's ambitions. They had gotten there. They had made their pile. They were in every way disposed to eat, drink, and make good cheer. When I read that, some words came to my mind from another book that I have read upon occasion. And in the Gospel of Luke and chapter 12, and beginning at verse 16, it says, And he told them a parable. Jesus, of course, is speaking. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. You fool. Now, I wouldn't talk like that, but God gets to if he wants to. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so these people, boastfully secure, they knew that everything was going to go well. They had a security that they could count on. The rich and the poor, they were all secure. In the depths of the ship, the third-class passengers danced to the bagpipes. And upstairs, in the higher levels, there was a hymn sing, but only about a hundred people attended it. After a sumptuous dinner, the first-class passengers generally were moving towards the Louis Says Lounge where the best orchestra afloat was about to give a concert. They had put everything that they had in the confidence of mankind's ability to predict and eliminate any danger. And you know, week after week, I say to people, you need to trust Jesus Christ. You need to come into a relationship with him through faith. And time after time, people sit in their seats and think to themselves, someday. Or they think to themselves, no, I, I'm fine. I've got everything covered. I'm a good person. I don't need to have a specific relationship with God. He's going to let me into his heaven. 
And our plans are all focused around the things of this world. We're concerned with our pension. We're concerned with our income. We're concerned with the things that we have, the boat we need, the car we want to renew. All of these sorts of things, they are become the focus of our lives. And we think that that's what life is all about. And Jesus said, no, that's not what life is all about. The security that I have in my pension. Wait. Oh, I wasn't in the pension plan. Never mind. The security that I have in my OAS. The security that I have in my house. All of those things are things that Jesus said you cannot count on forever because someday, maybe this day, your soul will be required of you and you will stand in the presence of God And in the presence of God, everything will change. Everything will be different. Because there's one question that God is going to ask you and me. And that question is very simple. And it's going to be this. What is your relationship with my son, Jesus Christ? Have you brought him into your life as your Savior, your Lord, the director of your life? You see, it was a, a false security that they had. All of this in the security that by Tuesday morning they would be in New York. The 17-year-old Thayer boy noted it was just the sort of night that makes you glad to be alive. But it was a false security. The Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. He is. He is mocked every day. But not ultimately. Ultimately, God will not be mocked at all, ever, under any circumstances. And even as Christians, James warns us that we have the tendency to be like this. We plan our lives. We make our plans. We say, this is what I'll do. That's what I'll do. Well, James talks about it. Chapter 4 and verse 13, James says to us, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. See, that's, that's my plan. Every one of us here probably has some kind of a plan for his or her life. There's nothing wrong with having a plan as long as I understand that my plan is subject to God's plans. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. God says that when I make my plans and I leave him out of my plans, it's evil. It's evil in his sight. When I plan my life and figure out how I want things to work out and set out to make sure they do work out like that without saying, God, what do you have for me? What do you want for me? 
And that's not just for pastors. That's for every single one of us. God wants us to say, Lord, what do you want for me? What is your plan for my life? What do you want me to do? There was no irksome lifeboat drill that night. Why should there be on an unsinkable ship? There were known to be icebergs in the area. Several radio or wireless messages from other ships attested to that. But nothing to worry about on that ship with two men vigilant up in the crow's nest high above. The captain slept secure in the knowledge that all was well. I'm, I'm reading again. The wealthy members of the steamer set commuting between New York and Paris demanded service and got it. The great luxury liners sliced in the night through ice fields at top speed to arrive literally on the scheduled moment. There was an army of stewards, valets, and maids on Titanic, but not one spare crew member to take a message from the radio room to the bridge. Titanic had Turkish baths and trellised verandas, but not enough lifeboats for more than half the people aboard. They had designed enough lifeboats. They had put enough lifeboats on, and they decided they cluttered up the deck too much, and they took half of them off before she sailed. The pantries were stocked with fine wines, but the binoculars were missing from the masthead where the lookout scanned the sea for icebergs. These practices were justified by that word, unsinkable. It was no mere blurb, but more in the nature of a guarantee that no act of God would annoy the elite. No act of God would annoy the elite. They had it made, but it did. It did. What I think doesn't change the fact do you understand that? What you think you are, where you think you're going, what you think you're going to be doing, what you think about things, how you self-identify doesn't change the facts. I identify myself as a wonderful, world-famous orator and pastor. See, you laugh. You identify me in a different way, right? And how I identify myself, how I see myself, doesn't change anything. The facts are the facts. The facts are that ship was going to hit an iceberg and did. I don't know the facts of tomorrow and you don't know the facts of tomorrow. And because we do not know the facts of tomorrow, we need to settle the fact today of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have to do that. I may live another 10 years. I may not make it till tomorrow. At 11.40, lookout fleet high in the forward mast, Struck three bells and phoned the bridge. Iceberg right ahead. 37 seconds later, with a shudder that didn't even wake many of the sleeping passengers, Titanic grazed an iceberg, which a few moments later was but a shadow astern.
But in that grazing, that iceberg had ripped a hole 300 feet long, almost 100 meters long below the waterline. And the fact, the fact which was not immediately evident was that that ship was going to go down. And she did. At first, there was no panic because all aboard knew she could not sink. But she would sink. And a half an hour later, in the early moments of Monday morning, Captain E.J. Smith ordered a call for help sent out and ordered the lifeboats uncovered. Sixteen wooden lifeboats, four collapsibles. Enough for 1,178 passengers. <laughs> but there were more than, there were approximately twice that many on the ship. And lifeboat after lifeboat, when, they, when it went down into the water, rode away less than half full. Why? Why did they go away half full? Because they still believed the ship could not go down. They believed those lifeboats would be back and it was uncomfortable to get into the lifeboat. You know, lifeboats are always more uncomfortable than ships. And climbing into a spiritual lifeboat Allowing Jesus Christ to guide my life and to take over my life and to have his own way in all that I do, in all that I am, in all that I say, having his way in my life is a less comfortable way than doing the way I like it. Do you understand that? I'm not offering to people more comfort. I am someday, but not today. When we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's like stepping into the lifeboat and things don't get more comfortable. They often get less comfortable. Not everything is fixed in my life. More things go wrong now because people are less happy with me because I believe certain things that God has said. I would far rather have the comfort of an unsinkable ship. One of those who was there said the whole thing was so formal that it was difficult for anyone to realize it was a tragedy. Men and women stood in little groups and talked. Some laughed as the first lifeboats went over the side. All the time the band was playing ragtime. I can still see the men up on the deck tucking in the women and smiling. It was a strange sight. It all seemed like a play, like a drama that was being enacted for entertainment. It did not seem real. Men would say, after you, as they made some woman comfortable and stepped back. I afterward heard someone say that the men went downstairs into the restaurant. Many of them smoked. Many of them walked up and down. It was uncomfortable to get into the lifeboat, but whether they believed it or not, that ship was going down. You know, when you and I read facts in the Bible, please understand that those facts are 
absolute. They are true. They are going to happen. The things that God has said are going to happen will happen. It has been that way since the beginning of creation. Week by week, I plead with people to accept Christ and get into the lifeboat. But it's not convenient, they say. Maybe later. That night, more than 1,500 people went to stand before their maker and judge. Some went to their savior. But many of them had made no preparation for that tomorrow which will come. That eternal tomorrow which starts at that moment when I enter into eternity. And oh, the tragedy of that night. It was all so unnecessary. If only they had slowed down. If only they had posted lookouts in the bow. If only there had been binoculars in the crow's nest. If only more people had gotten into the boats. If only there had been enough boats. If only they had one minute more of warning, or none at all. You see, it was two hours and 40 minutes before Titanic went down, before she dropped her bow, as her stern rose toward the brilliant starlit sky, her still props now dripping water. And then with a thunderous roar, the huge boilers broke loose and the ship herself broke in two and sank below the still sea two miles down before she stopped. Gone with 15 Hundred people in the water desperately crying for help. Colonel Gracie described it as starlights revealed a scene of indescribable horror. The sea all around was covered with a mass of tangled wreckage and the struggling forms of many hundreds of people, men, women, and children, slowly, inexorably freezing to death in the ice cold water. A sheet of thin gray vapor hung like a pall a few feet above the surface. It reminded Gracie of the unearthly waters of Lette in the Aeneid. Add to this, said the colonel, within the area described, which was as far as my eyes could see, there arose to the sky the most horrible sounds ever heard by mortal men except by those of us who survived this terrible tragedy. The agonizing cries of death from over a thousand throats, the wails and the groans of the suffering. But you know, it still didn't have to be that tragic. There was another ship there that night, within 10 miles, the Californian, careful of the ice, lay stopped. Her crew, saw the rockets that Titanic sent up. But her captain, Captain Lord,
convinced himself that no emergency likely existed. He did not want to bother getting out of bed. He didn't get his radio operator out of bed. Even though Titanic was typing out for the first time in history, SOS, SOS. And the boats, those lifeboats, those half-full lifeboats, laid on their oars, and they refused to go back for fear of being swamped by so many more trying to get in. Two, two out of 16 went back to rescue more. And again, my mind went to a scripture passage when I came across that story. Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 3, and about verse 16. Let's go down a bit. If I say to the wicked, you shall die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked man of his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And he goes again through, if a righteous man turns from the way and you warn him and he turns back, you'll both save your souls. But if you don't warn him, I will require it at your hand. Is there somebody on your heart? Is there somebody on your mind? Somebody that needs to know about Jesus? Somebody that needs to be challenged with the opportunity to know Christ? Is there somebody that you are burdened for, but you haven't yet talked to them? And so, as we hear these words, there are two things that grabbed me. The first was, I don't know tomorrow. I don't know the rest of today. And so I need to be ready under God. I need to say, Lord, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing tomorrow in your will. And by the way, Lord, <laughs> what is your will? What do you want from me? How can I serve you? How may I bring honor and glory to your name? And Lord, who is it that I need to share the glorious, wonderful, life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ with, that they may have the opportunity to know you as I do? Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Open us to your truth. Now, Father, if there's someone in this room this morning who does not yet know you, may this be the day 
that that person would say, yes, Lord, come into my life. Forgive my sins. I trust Jesus as my Savior. And Father, open us to following you that others might be delivered from destination disaster. For I pray it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us and rose from the dead in victory. Amen.